the pulpit in such great hands of Jordan and uh, so grateful for him and his ministry up at Hume Lake. He's the director of Wildwood, um, a discipleship camp up at Hume. And so, you know, one of the things obviously we want to do here is we want to pour into young leaders and giving young leaders a chance to get the reps they need to, to step out and to get into pastoral ministry. And so it's awesome to have Jordan be part of that. It's also great to have Adelie come on board as our worship director. I feel, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. The timing was something so that I wasn't able to be here to kind of give that introduction. At our congregational meeting next week, we'll have a chance to meet Adelie a little bit more, um, to hear a little bit more about her. And so that's going to be a great time um, and have a more thorough introduction to her. We'll also get a, an introduction to, I don't know how many of you have met Murph. Murph, what a great name. Our facilities coordinator, our facilities assistant that we hired in November. He's been on since November and doing things around here, but Murph will be here. It's, isn't that a great name for facilities assistant? Murph is like, anyway, Murph is such a great guy, and he's been a blessing to us, and you'll have a chance to meet him at the congregational meeting. It'll be immediately after, this, after the service next week. So we'll also get a chance to hear a bit of an end of the year 2020 recap how many cups of coffee we drank this year, how many donuts we ate this year, you know, little things like the important information, right? Exactly. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles or your apps or whatever you're looking at God's Word at today, let's open up to John chapter 6. Thank you, Loray, for such a great read of that passage. We began last year to work through the Gospel of John. It's been a real blessing to me. There's so much depth in the Gospel of John. There's so many layers to the Gospel of John. Of John. And one of the cool things about the Gospel of John, because we've talked about it as kind of a supplemental gospel, we look at the Gospel of John as intentionally a supplement to the other gospel traditions that had become standard really by the time John began his writing. And so one of the cool things is that today, what Loray read to us is actually the one miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. There's only one miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, and that is the feeding of the multitude, or the feeding of the 5,000. And so, um, walking on water wasn't, it actually, the Gospel of Luke doesn't record that. I don't know, no extra charge for that little bit of information. Um, but, but the feeding of the 5,000 is one thing, it must have been a very memorable event. Wouldn't you imagine especially if there are 5,000 people who shared the memory of this event, that you could actually have it. And there's a lot of things that are, that are the same in the Gospels, but there are some things that John adds in. And so what we want to do today is we want to just look through this passage, see what God has for us, what John is trying to do as, as John remembers who Jesus is and tells the story of Jesus, as well as the significance of who Jesus is, what does John have for us today? What does God have for us today? And so let's open our Bibles expectantly because we're anticipating that God has something to say to us today. Amen? All right, John chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. All right, so nerd alert. Here we go. You ready, Maurice? That's your cue on nerd alert. All right, so this is the Sea of Galilee. Um, how many of you have been there? Yeah, it's so awesome. I love it. This is great. So the Sea of Galilee, I should turn this around. 
I was told that if I had too many cups of coffee, it would be shaky, but check it out, everybody. Okay, all right. So a couple of things just as we kind of look at this. We've heard of Cana in the Gospel of John, right? We've heard of Nazareth. This is where he's from. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? That's our Nathaniel speech. Um, and then the water to wine episode happens here. It's also where he heals the, uh, the official son who's in Capernaum who comes out to Cana. Now this example, the Sea of Galilee, is 12 miles long and about 6 miles wide. And what we're looking at here, Tiberius, this, this is also called the Sea of Tiberius. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is actually a lake. It's a freshwater lake. It's about the third, a third of the size of Lake Tahoe if you wanted to know. So that's a little bit about this. But um, it, is, it is 200 feet below sea level. And so as you think from the south, if you think about the south, if you go from the south, the Jordan River comes out of the Sea of Galilee and down to the Dead Sea. And the, the Dead Sea is about 1,000 feet, um, about 1,700 feet below sea level. And so it's in this Great Rift Valley, which means that these mountains that surround these are about 200 feet above sea level. These get to about 800 feet above sea level. And what that means is that the air that, tre- that kind of is over the sea or the, over the lake here is warm air that's coming up from the desert that actually gets fairly moist. And then what happens is you get cool air that comes in off the Mediterranean from the west, and that's what stirs up these storms, these kind of famous storms on the Sea of Galilee. And so just a little bit of understanding about just how this happens. When we were, the day that we were baptizing Lee and Dave, um, the day before it had been really like calm and we got in the, in the water and we're like hanging out and just kind of enjoying ourselves. And then the day we were baptizing, these waves were coming in and it's like, okay, I baptize you in the name of the Father, you know. And then, and then it was, so yeah, it had kind of these waves and they come up pretty quickly. They tend to come up nearer the end of the day, just like in this passage. And so we're going to look at this account and kind of figure out what's going on. Now it says that Jesus went away to the other side. Now, what's the other side? <laughs> well, if you're Jewish, the other side, if you're Jewish, how about if we do this? All right. How we, oh, yeah. Okay, everybody. Can we, can we just, agree? oh, there it is. Okay. So this side is predominantly, if you were Jewish, this is really the side that you were on. Okay. The, sea, the, the Jordan River that comes in on the northern side divides Galilee from what is known as the Decapolis, the city of uh, the region of 10 cities. And so just crossing over that river puts you in a different district. Typically, Jews lived on this side and Gentiles lived on this side. Okay? So what we find out is that when, when John says he goes to the other side, probably what happens, and here's if we can show the next. Um, it, oh, sorry, hold on one second, Maurice. This, so this is the city of Tiberias right there, and there's a mountain right here that's called Mount Arbel, right here, and this next, what we're going to see is we're going to have a a view to the northeast from the top of Mount Arbel in the next picture, so go ahead. All right, so that's a view from the top of Mount Arbel. Now, this is where, this is where all the action is on the Sea of Galilee in the biblical narrative. Um, You have down here is this, is the, um, uh, the city uh, or the village of Magdala, um, they just kind of unearthed that city. Um, and then over here is the city of Tabga or the village of Tabga. You've got Capernaum out here in the distance. 
And in the far distance, you have the city or the town of Bethsaida, these, these fishing villages. And so probably what happens when it says that Jesus goes to the other side, he's probably going somewhere from like Magdala, Tiberius would be like over here, from Magdala all the way to the other side over by Bethsaida and further south than that. So that's over there, you have flat area, it's going to say that there's a lot of grass, it's a place where 5,000 people could gather, but that's a little bit of what we're looking at here when, when we talk about this particular scene. And again, I, I just want us to have a little a picture in our minds of what this might look like. And so on the far side, on, if you go further out, go back one more, Maurice, on the far side of that, those mountains out there or those hills, that's the, what we call the Golan Heights. It's this, it's this high plain about 800 feet above sea level that goes out all the way out to Syria. But it's this, these heights, and that's when it talks about Jesus going up into the mountain, probably into the Golan Heights is where he goes on this side. All right. Okay, let's, so that's a little bit of the background of this. It says this, it, it continues on, and it says that a, a large crowd in 6-2, in a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, if you're keeping score at home or you're following along in the Gospel of John, one thing that we can note is that so far we've not had big crowds around Jesus. And what Jesus has done, like in Cana, he turns the water to wine, but it's, it's hush-hush, only the servants knew it happened. When he heals the official son, he does it from a distance. It's like a long-distance healing. So there's, when, they fi- when he finds out about it, it's not like there's this huge crowd around. So, so far, we haven't had huge crowds. So the question is, where do all these crowds come from? And we can't really figure that out from the Gospel of John, but if we go back to the Gospel of of Mark, what we find out is that immediately before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. Sometimes we don't talk about this very much in the Gospel accounts, but what Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark is he gathers his 12 around and he says, hey, I've been healing people, and I've been casting out demons. This is what I'm going to do. All right, guys, gather in. All right, I'm going to give you that power, and you're going to go out and do that. And I'm going to send you out in teams of two. And they probably would have looked at each other, and they're all huddled up, and they're like, yeah, exactly. Oh, really, you want us to go out and do that? And so what happens is they go out to all these villages, And they go out to all these towns like Nazareth and Cana and Bethsaida and Capernaum and all these areas in Galilee. And what happens is they start to like, they're like, okay, I don't even know what, I mean, there's no accounts of actually this happening, but it'd be interesting to, to, to actually see a videotape of what it's like. They're like, hey, my son has a demon. And they're like, okay, well, let's, in Jesus' name, be gone. And, and like the demon leaves and they're like, hey, this stuff works. Like the power, the, ki- the power of the kingdom actually comes to bear as they step out in faith to follow the leading of Jesus. I mean, imagine that. Ima- imagine actually seeing the power of the kingdom come to bear in life change. These are the sorts of things that we as followers of Jesus, obviously, that we want to do as well. We want to see the power of the kingdom. It might not be these miraculous things, but Jesus goes on to say, look, even offering a cup of cold water in my name is doing it unto me. The power of the kingdom can come to bear. So they come back in other gospels, they come back and they're like, Jesus, it worked. 
it worked. They're surprised. And in Mark, they come back and they're like, it worked. It, it all worked. And then all of a sudden, you got 5,000 people showing up. All the, these teams of two went out. And when they start coming back, there are crowds that start to follow them. And this is what it turns up happening. It says in 6.4. It says in 6.4, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? It looked like what is happening is Jesus says, Okay, you guys have all come back. We're going to go up onto the hillside. We're going to have a little time to debrief, to retreat, to rest. I know it was, it, was, it was busy. You guys need to rest. But the crowd starts to press in. And Jesus, it says he lifts up his eyes, which is an act of compassion. In the Gospel of John, every time Jesus lifts up his eyes to see, the last time we saw Jesus lifting up his eyes, it was when the Samaritan woman had gone into town and said, he, he told me everything I did. And then this throng of people starts coming out and it says, Jesus lifts up his eyes. And that's when he tells his disciples, the fields are white for harvest. You see that crowd of Samaritans? They are ready. They are ripe. They are ripe for harvest. And here, Jesus lifts up his eyes and he looks out and he sees this throng of people 5,000 men is what it says, which is, is an underestimation. An under, uh, but he lifts up his eyes. He sees the large crowd coming toward him. And Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? Now, what, you might ask, one of the questions, like, why Philip? Is it just like this is just the recollection? But here's the interesting thing. Philip, if, he's, if they went from... Tiberius or Magdala, and they went to the other side, the nearest city to the other side is Bethsaida. Do you know where Philip is from? He's, he's from Bethsaida. That's where he's from. And so we're, he's kind of on Philip's home turf, and so Jesus is like, like, hey, Philip, where can we get bread for all these people? You're from around here, right? You know the area. You know all the good, you know, you know all the good falafel spots. Like, where, where are we supposed to get, where are we supposed to get food for all these people? Now, it says, it says, he said this to test him, but he himself knew what he was going to do. Now, Jesus knew what he was going to do, and he was going to enact, he was going to do something that was going to remind people of something else. He was going to do something that was going to show power and compassion, but also remind people of something from the Old Testament. Now, we're going to get to that in a second, but the idea here is Jesus already knows what he's going to do, but he does this to test Philip. Now, I don't know, like, is this, I always tell my, I always tell my students, I, I'm, I'm teaching a class up at Fuller Seminary, I'm teaching a class at Biola, whenever I do an assessment or a test, I always say, I'm not trying to trick you. I, I want to accurately record what you know. I'll even pray ahead of time that God will remind you of the information that we've gone over, right? I'm, I'm for you. Now, so I don't know, if, is Jesus trying to do a trick question on Philip? I don't know. One way or another, Jesus is trying to bring Philip along on this. And Philip's response, Philip's response is probably the response that I had this week. Because um, Philip's response is, look, he basically says 200 denarii, which is about eight months of wages, eight months of your income. 
And Philip, Philip basically says, look, I could work for eight months, and we couldn't buy, we could only buy enough for everybody to have kind of a mouthful, like just a little bit. Eight months of income would only give everybody a mouthful. This is the response I had. So one of the things that, I, that I'm doing, um, the churches of the city of Orange have uh, started a nonprofit called Love Orange that we've used for, um, for our serve day, the serve day that coming out and when we picked up trash and um, we picked up a lot of bags of trash, we'll find out how many last week or next week. Um, but there's a, we have a, a board meeting uh, about every quarter for that. And so, um, so this last week, one of the things that came up was um, one of the corporations, a corporation came to one of our pastors and said, hey, we're going to have a, an annual meeting here in the city of Orange, and we're going to have 5,000 employees. Would you be able to provide and oversee a service project for all 5,000 employees? Now, look, we're, we are a young organization, okay? And, I mean, what would you do? Like, like... I mean, it blew all of our minds. Like, we're like, ah, I don't know. I, I don't even know. Like, we could pick up trash, but like, how many trash bags is that? And like, how many people? That would be like a swarm of people <laughs> in the city of Orange. Like, it's almost overwhelming to think about, hey, provide something for 5,000 people to do, right? It's overwhelming if we think about it, and we were. I was like, well, let's think about it. Let's like brainstorm for five minutes, and then we can... And like, if it's just totally going to blow our gaskets, we have to, we have to not, you know, like, let's, let's put it out of our minds. But it is cool to see, first of all, it's cool to see what God is doing, right? That there are, there are people that are out there that are like, hey, we want, we want to partner with churches and we want to serve. Like, that's pretty cool. But at the same time, like, it, there's almost a sense of like, hey, we're not ready for that yet. But all that to say, basically, basically, Philip says exactly that. Like, Jesus that's awesome that you love all these people. We, we love you, and we know you love all these people, but we're kind of not ready for this yet. Like, and we did, we went out two by two, that's great, but two by two is not going to do it for 5,000 men and women and children on top of that. And so Philip is kind of like, hey, we're just not ready. We don't have the, in, we don't have the funding. We don't even have like kind of an infrastructure. Like, how are we going to do this? And then Andrew shows up. Andrew's awesome because the last time we saw Andrew in the gospel, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. He's the guy who brings Nathaniel to Jesus. And what do we see him doing here? Look at what it says. Look at what it says in verse, uh, what are, where are we at? Verse, uh, verse 8. Then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Andrew, what's Andrew doing again? He's going out and finding somebody and bringing them to Jesus. He just happens to be a little kid. Now, here, here's what we have there. Every, everyone, like I said, every gospel records this miracle, okay? And the five loaves is part of every account of every gospel. That Jesus has five loaves and two fish, okay? I'm sure you could even get like a nice Hobby Lobby decoration with five loaves and two fish or something like that, right? Exactly, you can, you can go there and you could get that. The one thing that John includes is what kind of bread it is. It's a barley loaf. And you're like, why does that matter? Well, it does matter, and here's why. It's not, it's not kosher. It's actually, 
when you made bread in the ancient world, the best bread was made out of wheat. And the reason why is because of gluten. And you're like, I'm trying to go gluten-free. Hang with me, everybody, okay? Okay. Gluten allows the bread and the yeast, it allows it to rise. It gives it a smoother texture. When you make bread out of wheat, it might be crusty on the outside, but it's, it's really soft and it's a great texture on the inside. It's, it's the best bread. And wheat was used for the best bread. So if you were rich or elite, you would always have bread that was made out of wheat. The cheaper bread, which didn't have the best texture, which was a little rougher, didn't taste as good, was made out of barley. Barley bread was for the poor. Barley bread was for those who couldn't afford the best stuff. And one of the things that I think is really cool about what John does here is he's like, Jesus doesn't just use wheat, wheat loaves. He's going to use barley loaves. And it gives us a sense of who is gathering around Jesus. It's not, not necessarily, there might be some Pharisees, there might be some elite, there might be some among that large crowd, but predominantly who are gathering around Jesus are the people who are in need. The people who don't have the resources in order to solve the problems that life is plaguing them with. And so, John just says, hey, it's five loaves, but let's make it clear, these are barley loaves. This is a barley loaf crowd. This is a barley loaf crowd. So he includes the detail to note that the crowd is not of the elites, and the point being is that it's, 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 it's building on this idea that what Jesus is doing is an act of compassion. He's lifting up his eyes on a barley loaf crowd, and it's an act of compassion. He sees them, and he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a truckload of barley bread. And we don't even know if the bread he makes is barley loaf bread. Wouldn't it be awesome if it was like it came out wheat bread? They don't say that. But wouldn't, wouldn't that be interesting? But he multiplies this. He multiplies it. it. says two fish. These are probably small pickled fish. Anyway, the point, the point is that they take the tiny lunch of a boy, maybe a servant, and that's what they use. It's almost like Andrew's like, hey, Jesus, there's this kid over here, and he's got a Lunchables, right? And he's all, but hey, look, but that Lunchables isn't going to feed everybody. And Jesus says, I can work with the Lunchables. I can work with the Lunchables. And so look what he does in, in 610. Jesus simply says this. He says, have the people sit down. I mean, think about, think about Philip. Like, how do we do this? Well, let's start with this. Let's just put people in groups and have them sit down. A lot of play. There's a lot of grass here. It's probably springtime because it says earlier that it's Passover. And so, and in that region, you would have had a lot of flat ground. You would have had a lot of grass, green grass at this time. If it's in the fall, it's brown. It's kind of like around here. Like right now, all the mountains are green. It's so awesome. It's not going to stay that way. It's going to get brown pretty quick, Right? Especially, what drought or not, that's just the way it works around here. Very similar to over there in Israel. So he makes the people sit down. There's a lot of grass. And it says then, in our text, it says there's a noting of the number of men. It says, now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now there's going to be a reason why John chooses to record the number of men. And it's not because... 
he's a misogynist and it's a patriarchal society and they only counted by men. There's a reason why they count only the number of men. But, if, but so we understand the size, if they counted the number of men, you might imagine that it's two or three times that size of people gathered. So if you add in the women, if you add in the children that are there, you're looking at two or three times the amount of people. So 5,000 is really about 10 to 15,000 people that are gathering on this plain, this northern plain, this northeastern plain of the Sea of Galilee with the Golan Heights up here, the city of Bethsaida over here, and they're sitting down and they've been listening to Jesus teach and they're wanting him to help. And Philip is like, we can't do this. And Andrew's like, lunchables and Jesus is like all right let's have everybody sit down and then what it says is something very simple Jesus took the barley loaves which probably about the size of a roll a dinner roll something like that he took these barley rolls these barley loaves and he gave thanks and then he broke them and distributed them probably to the disciples first and then the disciples take them out from there because later on it says that there are 12 baskets that are filled with the leftovers Um, and so probably each of these disciples gets a basket and they're going to go out and distribute these but he just starts breaking and it's just break and break and break and break and break and break and you can just I mean it doesn't really say what the responses or even how this happens how, how would this have happened? I don't even, I mean, this is where I think the scriptures just imagine us, have us use our imaginations. Like, if Jesus is just breaking these rolls in half, and it, by the time he's breaking and it's landing in this thing, you're just filling up these baskets, and the disciples are like, what? What? And then they go back to Jesus, and they're just like, whoa, my gosh. Like, it's just this huge amount of food. And he does the same thing with the fish, which is a little more gross. Now, some people see, some people in this passage see echoes of the Lord's Supper. Can you kind of see that a little bit? Like he takes the bread, especially because John does not record the words of institution. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at the end of Jesus' life, on the last night, the last supper, Jesus takes bread, he breaks it, he, he thanks God, this is my body broken for you, take and eat, this is my body. And then with the cup, he does the same thing. And so uh, many people will actually look at this And then later on in chapter 6, Jesus says, you've got to take my body and you've got to eat it. And people are like, I'm no cannibal, I'm out of here. Like that happens later. We'll talk about that next week, okay? But some people see this kind of Lord's Supper thing. Now, I'm not sure, but I don't want, okay, I'll I'll say that. I think the point of this passage is not to show that this is the Lord's Supper. The point of this passage is, one, to show the compassion of Jesus. Secondly, It's just to show the abundance of what he does. Look at verse 11 again. Well, we've already noted, I suppose in abundance, we've already noted that this is in in chapter, in verse 2 and 5, this is a large crowd. Philip has already noted eight months of income is what it's going to take just for a little bit. And then it just, it had already said 5,000 men, only men. Now listen to the words of abundance that come in verses 11 and 13. Just, just note them as, as I read through this. Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks. He distributed those to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
It's not like, it's not like they just get a mouthful. It's like, hey, can I have seconds? And Jesus is like, yes. And in verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, these people are not like, hey, this was a nice snack that tides me over until I can get to Bethsaida and really get to the, to the, to the falafel stand, right? No, this is about they ate their fill until they were satisfied. And then it says, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When it says the leftover fragments, it it almost doesn't do it justice in the translation. The word there in Greek is, it says, fill up the baskets with the abounding fragments. It's not left, like we think of leftovers as like, oh, we had this great meal and like there's a couple chicken legs that are left. Just put it in some Tupperware and put it in. This is the abounding fragments. So the point that John is making is that people ate their fill. They asked for seconds. They ate until they were full. And even at the end, the fragments abounded. So the point is that, yes, Jesus is is compassion on the crowd. And then also just the abundance of what God is able to provide for those who are in need of God's touch and provision. They ate as much as they want, and the emphasis here is on the lavishness of God's provision. They ended, they ended with more than they had when they began. If you were the little kid at the end, they're like, hey, why don't you take home a basket full of bread? You know, you came, you came with the loaves, the, the, five, the five rolls and the two fish, but why don't you take a basket home on the way out? It, it, it's abundance. It's abundance. Now, one of the things, probably, if you've been following along in the Gospel of John, every time Jesus does a sign, and signs, signs, are, signs are awesome, but every time you see sign, there's a couple things you need to note in the Gospel of John, right? One of them is that, yeah, sign, signs are good. Signs point to something else. Like, signs are awesome, but signs point to something else. So like a sign, a miracle points maybe to the person doing it. Maybe that's a prophet, but the prophet is supposed to point to something else, the presence of God, that whatever that is is supposed to point to God, ultimately to point to God himself. And sometimes, according to John, when we see sign, what we see is that making that connection back to God is oftentimes very difficult when Jesus performs a sign. There's oftentimes misunderstandings Actually, not oftentimes, every time Jesus performs a sign in the Gospel of John, there's a misunderstanding. Without fail, there's a misunderstanding. Whether it's, the, whether it's in the asking for it or the, rece- or the interpretation of it, there's a misunderstanding. And this is also going to be a bit of a mix of, yes, you got that right, but also a misunderstanding. Look at 614. When the people saw the sign that he had done, now we... John has clued us in. You see the word sign, expect something good and something misunderstanding. This is what they say. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And what they're alluding to here is they're alluding to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. In the middle of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, hey, if you obey all these commandments, 
God's going to bless you. There's going to be rain. There's going to be, your crops are going to overflow. It's going to be great. God's going to bless you. But if you don't obey these commandments, no rain, foreign armies are going to come in. There's going to be, it's all going to be, it's going to be bad. But what's going to happen is that God will send a prophet. If you blow it, God is going to send a prophet like me into the world. And he's going to point you in the right direction. And what they say, this is a lot of people, a lot of uh, scholars look at that as in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. This is a prophecy about either the prophet to come in the, in the time, at the end times, or even the Messiah. Like this prophet who's supposed to come in the world. And we already saw this in the Gospel of John. When the Pharisees come from Jerusalem to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is like, hey, let me stop you guys right there. I'm not the Messiah. And they're like, well, are you Elijah or are you the prophet? So John has already introduced this, and we know John the Baptist isn't the prophet, but now these people are like, hey, this guy Jesus, this guy is the prophet who has come into the world. And that's probably true. Jesus is probably fulfilling that Deuteronomy 18 verse that he is the prophet who is to come in the world. He is the Messiah. But then look what else they say. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And this is the important thing. Here's this sign, and they kind of, like it points to Jesus, and it kind of like, and they're like, hey, the prophet, the Messiah maybe, a prophet, kind of right? But ultimately, it leads them to a misunderstanding. They're like, hey, I think this guy can be useful. I think this guy can be useful for our cause. Now, here's, here's where we get back to what's their cause. One of the reasons why John records that it's, it's 5,000 males, okay, probably what John is doing here is John is noting that these are 5,000 military-aged males. Now, when you add that, qualifier on there what do you, you can think of something like this is this is a pretty sizey militia if you've got 5,000 military aged males gathering in one place who are a little disgruntled because they get the barley and the elites get the wheat this is a size this is this could be a sizable uprising and it actually makes some sense about why Jesus why Jesus' disciples, when they're gathering these sizes of people, they're constantly going back and forth into different territories because they don't want to get on one radar screen about, hey, there's, there's 5,000 men that are gathering up in Galilee. Like, the Romans will come in, and they'll just kill everybody. Like, that's what happens, that's what, that's what happens in about A.D. 66. The Romans just come through, and they're just like, hey, are you a military-age male? Slaughter. That's, that's what happens during the Jewish War. So you've got 5,000 military-aged males who are now saying, this guy should be our leader. He feeds us. The power of God is at work. We have something we want to do. Let's, let's conscript Jesus into our cause. Now before I go on from there, the more things change, the more things stay the same. There is, a, there, is an innate, there is an innate response within all of us 
and in our world, there's something that I care deeply about, I'm going to have Jesus become the leader of that. I like this political movement. I'm just going to bring Jesus over to that and say, Jesus endorses this. I like this kind of activity. I'm just going to bring Jesus over and have him endorse that. And I just want you to know, like, if Jesus is a king, he's the king of what he wants to be king of. That over the years, there's been plenty of Jesus bless what I love. And Jesus is like, I'm not sure I love that. Like, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is going to say, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not leading a rebellion. I'm not after political power. I'm not after, like, we had this um, sign um, that was uh, one of the local mega churches was doing this, this campaign a couple of election cycles ago. It was Jesus for president. And we decided to steal one of the signs and put it in our garage because we're, you know, good Christians that way. Jesus for president. And I, like there's something about the sentiment of that. Like I want Jesus in charge. But I think Jesus would say, I didn't come here to be president. I didn't come here for political power. And I think this is a great spot that we would note that Jesus did not come here just to amass raw political power. Jesus came here to change lives. Jesus came here to transform a heart not simply flex his political muscles. Look, if God wanted to flex his political muscles, God could flex his political muscles. And I think it's just one of those things, like, I think there's one thing that we should note here is that we should always be careful about any political movement that simply wants to constrict Jesus as its blesser. And I, I, I've, I've kind of made up my, like I've, I've over the years just kind of realized like every time I go to the polls, I'm always going to hold my nose in one way or another for whoever I'm voting for. Jesus has not endorsed either candidate. Now there might be things that people in different political movements are trying to do that are better or worse or, or right or wrong or however we want to do that. But the one thing we need to note is that when Jesus is given the opportunity to, to hold on to political power, he does not. Now, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that causes are not something to fight for or to, to rally for, maybe fight's the wrong word, but to rally for and to do things in our, in our world. But I will say this, if Jesus, Jesus did not come here to rally for a political cause. If he was, this story would be totally different. As soon as they start rallying for a political outcome, Jesus is like, I'm going to go back up to the cave up there in the Golan Heights. Because you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the temptations that I had in the wilderness. When Satan says, hey, all these kingdoms, I can give you all these kingdoms. And Jesus is like, um, yeah, I, I, that's, that's, not, that's not what I'm about. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I got a verse in Deuteronomy for that, right? I'm not, I'm not about that stuff. And so what you guys are doing, it's reminding me of the temptation of Satan for political power. And I'll just say this, we're, we're going to enter into a presidential election cycle. And I just want to say this, I, I'm going to assume, I'm going to assume that every Christian that I know when they cast their ballot is going to hold their nose for whatever candidate they vote for. Okay, I'm just saying that. 
And what I want to make clear is that I want the doors of this church open to every single person in the city of Orange, no matter how they vote. Okay, that's, that's important to know. That because Jesus has come to transform hearts. He's like, what I care about, I care about these people, but I want, to, Philip, I want Philip to know. I want Philip to be transformed by this. I want Andrew to know that when he brought that kid, that made a difference. I could have done it through everything. I want that little kid to know that what he had was enough and that we can use that. I want to transform these people's lives. And if going away and getting away, I think it's so interesting, Jesus does this miracle and then, and then he bails. Like oftentimes, in the, like with the, when he heals the guy at the pool of Bethsaida or Bethesda, like he heals him and then Jesus like slips away and while everybody's around, they're like, who did this? Jesus is like, I'm out of here, man. Like I'm afraid of what they're going to try to get me to do next. And I think sometimes we have to take our cue from that, that, that God is saying, look, I want to work in this situation, but let's make it clear like, we got, like, yes, we need to anticipate that God's going to move, but we also need to let God, let Jesus set the agenda for what's happening. And what Jesus is setting the agenda for is for the inner personal transformation. Yes, the per, it, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. The, there's external transformation that comes, but it comes first through the internal transformation of God's Holy Spirit and His power, not the other way around. We are not transformed from the outside in. That's law-keeping. We are transformed by the power of God being poured out in our hearts. In Romans 5, Paul says that we've been justified by, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's put in our hearts. And when that happens, what we expect is that God starts to move and transform our inner parts and it starts to work its way out, be transformed externally by the renewing of your mind. God will transform our hearts and our minds and it will start to work its way out in our lives. I would imagine, has anybody ever experienced this? That God changes your heart before he changes your behavior? It's one of the hardest things for the church because, look, the most measurable things are our behavior, right? And so oftentimes in church, we're just trying to, tr we're trying to regulate everyone's behavior. But really what we need to do is we need to be trusting that God is going to change hearts. And Jesus does that here. The battle Jesus to wishes to win is not at the ballot box. The battle Jesus wishes to win is the transformation of hearts and minds. Those who are a barley loaf crowd without hope and without God in the world, he came to preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. And we as a church, we want to do, we want to join in that enterprise. All right, amen. That's a little aside. We're going to land the plane here because there's one other thing as we work through this passage, one of the things that happens in this passage, I mean, there's a, it's awesome stuff, but there's other things that are happening here, one of which is simply this, that as Jesus is doing all of this stuff and John is recording all of this, one of the things that John is trying to do is he's, he's gone through and he's talked about the idea like Jesus uses the purification pots to make the water to wine, 
and he ruins the purification pots. And it's this kind of nod that like Jesus is coming to make purification pots obsolete. And then later on, at the, like last week we talked about the Passover. He heals that guy on the Passover and it's showing, he says, I am work, my father is working and I am working. That Jesus is coming not to make the, the Sabbath obsolete, but to show that he's superior to the Sabbath. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to do all of these things that he's superior to, the, to these feasts and he's, 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 uh, he's making this obsolete, he's superior to this. One of the things that's happening here is John is making the comparison that Jesus is doing the same things in the Old Testament, as Moses. Listen to the passage again. Six two. A large crowd is following him. That's Moses in the Exodus. Because they saw the signs. That's Moses and the Exodus. He went up on a mountain. That's Moses and the Exodus. And he sits down with his disciples. That's Moses going up to the mountain with the elders. And it's Passover. Just in case you're too dull to get this, we're just going to throw in, it's Passover too. This is Moses and the Exodus. And then he gives miraculous bread out of nowhere. Does that remind you of anything? Like manna in the wilderness. He's the prophet who is to come into the world who's supposed to be like Moses. And so one of the things as you read this passage, you're like, If you were reading this, you'd be like, hey, Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is doing the same things that Moses is doing. Jesus is the new Moses. But John wants to make it clear, Jesus is not simply the new Moses. When Moses wanted to go to the other side of the Red Sea, what did he do? Planted his staff, and God divided the water, and Moses went across on dry ground. Now listen to what Jesus does. Verse 16, when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea. They got in the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of the strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, which is about halfway into the Sea of Galilee, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they're frightened. Here's the thing. When Moses wants to cross to the other side, he's got to split it. What Jesus does is he does what God does at the beginning of all creation. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of the Lord was what? Was hovering over the water. The sea, the water, is a place of turmoil. It's not like we have like Jacques Cousteau, where you're like, hey, let's get the scuba gear on and go down into the water. Like the water, the water was the abyss. The water was a place where sea monsters were. Nobody went down into the water. Like nobody could do that. Everybody, it, was, it was a place of turmoil. It was the abyss. There's a reason why the pigs with the demons run into the lake in the Gospel of Mark, right? Because that's the, that's the abode of the dead down in the abyss. And what is Jesus doing? He's trampling it underfoot. He's hovering over the waters. He's walking on the water. This is the place. This is what only God can do. And when he shows up at the boat, see, up until now, Jesus is a new Moses. Jesus is a new Moses. Well, this is not, this is no Moses. This guy, this is not the way Moses did. He doesn't have to walk across on dry ground. He can walk on the water. He can hover over the water. He has power over the water. And then when he shows up at the boat, they're afraid. 
But he said to them, verse 20, and I'm so sorry that the ESV translates it this way. He says, it is I. That's not what he said. In Greek, he says, ego emi, I am. Which is exactly what not Moses said. It's what Moses heard from the burning bush when he asks God, what is your name so I can tell them who it is that sent me? And God says, Moses, tell them I am has sent you. And when Jesus is walking on the water, trampling evil and chaos, hovering over the water like at creation, he says, I am. This is no Moses. This is superior to Moses. One greater than Moses is here. And that's exactly what we're going to see next week when we look at the bread of life discourse. When Jesus talks about he is the bread of life, they're going to say, well, Moses gave us manna. What do you do? He's like, have you not been paying attention? One greater than Moses is here. And here's our last thing. Jesus is walking on water as the God of the universe, the God of creation. Wouldn't it be, it, wouldn't it be awesome just to be in Jesus' mind and be like, and he's like, yeah, this is what it was like at the beginning. I was walking on the water. And then he gets to the boat and he's like, they see him, they're afraid. He's like, I am. And they're like, okay. And then it says that they, they receive him into the boat. Now, I don't know about you guys. If I was God, sometimes I think about that, right? <laughs> right? Nobody else does. I'd be like, hey, why don't you show, throw me a line and I'll tow you into shore? Because I, I, I'm doing just fine out here. You guys are struggling with the rowing, right? You're tired. Let me tow you in. But Jesus actually says, hey, why don't I get in the boat with you? And this is what I want, this is what I want us to, to end on. Jesus can do a miracle and we can say, oh, I want him to be king. But really the only thing that Jesus wants to do is get in your boat. Like, really what he wants to do is he just wants to get in your boat and he just wants to be with you. He knows he, knows he could tow you wherever you need to go. And it does say that, like, he gets in the boat and boom, they're, they're where they need to be, right? It's like a miracle, another miracle. But really the interesting thing is here, I'm like, why does Jesus want to get in the boat? Isn't he doing just fine without them? And Jesus is like, no, what I really want to do is I want to get in your boat. And I just want to say this, like, I, I just want to say, are you willing to let Jesus in your boat? And it, it's a real question because there are times where I'm like, hey, look, I'm doing just fine. I'm doing just fine rowing. I'm doing just fine. I'm struggling, sure. But it, I feel like I'm in control. I'm doing everything I need to do, right? But Jesus is like, hey, can I come in the boat? Do you mind if I come in the boat too? And I think that's one thing that, one thing we say here when we pray at the beginning is we always, with the worship team and the tech team, and we come down and we pray, and one of the things we pray is we always pray that God would come and visit us. Would, he would be present with us. Because one thing we never want to be, like in the book of Revelation where it talks about, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. And he's, t- he's doing that to a church. He's bas- it's one of these interesting things, like in the book of Revelation, he says to this church in Laodicea, he's like, hey, I'm on the outside of your church and I'm knocking on the door and I'm just wondering if you'll let me in. And I never want Jesus to be like, hey, do you mind if I come in this morning? <laughs> like, I want to I beat Jesus to that punch, and I just want to say, Jesus, you're, you are welcome here. And sometimes that's going to be uncomfortable for us. 
And if we're ever in a place where we realize that Jesus is saying, hey, do you mind if I get in your boat? We have to realize, like, he's not in our boat. He's outside of our boat. And he's asking to get in because he wants to be part of this. And the, the question that I think we all need to ask is, like, am I willing to let Jesus in my boat? Have I let Jesus in my boat? Or am I just like, I'm cool just watching, watching the miracles happen around me, watching Jesus do whatever he's going to do, but as soon as he gets too close, I'm like, you know, Jesus, you can stay out of the boat. It's actually more interesting to watch you from afar. But Jesus is like, I didn't come for that. I really just came because I want you. I just want to be in your boat. Not because I want to go where you go, but I just want to be with you. Why don't we pray? Let's pray together. You know, every once in a while we come to a place where we just, we just take some stock. It's, sometimes it's a big thing. Sometimes it's just little things. Little diagnostics along the way where we ask, how am I doing with Jesus? Is he, have, I, have I welcomed him into my boat? And I think this morning just to ask ourselves, just to take a second. And if you haven't asked Jesus into your boat, this is just a great time. I know it's a weird analogy. But it's just a time to just say, look, if, if, you, if you want him in your life, just say, Jesus, I want to welcome you into my boat. I want to invite you into my life. I want you to come and be in me. I want to follow you. And Jesus will hear that prayer and he will come near. With confidence, I can say, Jesus will come near to you. And if you just have been in a season where maybe you're just on autopilot, you just don't know, like you've been like, yeah, I've just been kind of doing things on my own, like maybe it's just time to just re-up. Yeah, I've been following, just like the disciples, we've been following, but we're going to take this moment just to say, yeah, I want to make sure that you're in the boat, that we're doing this together. You're the king, but I'm inviting you into the boat. Just take a second. Whatever it is that's on your mind, just re-invite Jesus in. Jesus, thank you so much for these stories. Oh, they're so good. They're so compelling. What must it have been like to be around you? We just pray that you would move in our lives, move us in the directions that you would have us as imperfectly as we might do that, we know still you want to be near. You rejoice when we come to you. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen.